here we are. Several days into this experiment in awareness. I had a month-long retreat once where almost every time I heard the bell, the ACDC song. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a rolling thunder. (laughs) Power and rain. think about that song. (laughs) How'd you get here? To this place in your life practicing Buddhism training your own heart and mind to see clearly. At some point, each one of us came to that situation like in the matrix where we chose the blue one and said, I am willing to step out of the norm of my normal delusion, confusion, suffering. I'd imagine that for almost all of us, it was some level of dissatisfaction, some experience of suffering that motivated the willingness to undertake this path. And I invite you to reflect for a moment on what was that for you, that original, not only difficulty, if it was difficulty. But what was it that inspired you? What made you think that it was even possible to change, to wake up, to find freedom? The Buddha said that it's the prerequisite to spiritual practice. That the first factor 
has to be some level of confidence, some form of belief that it's possible. Not a blind faith, but there has to be some experience in our lives, something that inspires us, motivates us, gives us confidence that it's a worthy endeavor to say this prayer, to do this meditation, to practice generosity or service or whatever your introductory (coughs) practices have been. First and foremost, there's some level of faith. We just wouldn't do it. If there wasn't some inkling that it would work, that it would bring about the desired freedom, happiness. For some of us, it's as simple as having burned every other bridge. (laughs) Looked everywhere else first. And with nowhere else to turn, there can be this experience like Vinny was talking about on some levels last night of surrender. I looked deeply into finding happiness in the material world. I investigated stuff. (laughs) Intoxicants. Attention. Pleasure. Anger. Fear. None of it was satisfying. And so I surrendered and said, well, maybe there's another way. Whatever that experience was for you, and whoever or whatever experience it was that inspired you, motivated you, gave you a little bit of faith, maybe I can, maybe I can do this. Maybe meditation will help. And it's from that place of some confidence, some faith, that then we really start the path. That when we really start doing the practices, the training. Showing up to a silent, intensive meditation retreat. And as we sit here and walk, sometimes that faith is completely absent, isn't it? Totally gone. And the mind so loud. Why am I doing this? 
Why did I think that this was going to be good for me? It doesn't even make sense. (laughs) We're just going to sit here, you mean? And not talk to each other? And walk back and forth like zombies? How is this beneficial? Please remind me. But over and over in the interviews, in the groups, in the questions in the hall, people talk about like, wow, you know, like, it's working. I'm seeing the positive effects. I'm seeing the ability to be present moment to moment whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And seeing clearly that this delusion of self is mistaken identity. It's inner anarchy. Right? Trying to control your own mind. You think you're in charge? Your mind won't stop. Your body doesn't obey. Your emotions do whatever they want. But that there's this ability, the effort, to train the attention. Training the mind, although I say it all the time, is really the wrong terminology. It feels more and more to me like all I am doing, the only thing I can really do is choose what I pay attention to. The mind is going to do whatever it wants. It's conditioned momentum is way too powerful for me to stop. But that meditation shows us in each moment we can choose what we pay attention to and how we relate to what is happening now. Returning the attention to the present time experience over and over, whether it's the breath or the body or sensations or emotions or process of thoughts arising and passing. And as we sit here paying attention, we're visited by so many different experiences. These hindrances that the Buddha speaks of, really just the natural phenomena of the mind, of the human experience, 
of course there's going to be restlessness. Of course there's going to be sleepiness. And we're just wired to crave for pleasure, to cling to it, to plan for it. We're just wired to meet pain with aversion. And our attention, our mindfulness, the effort of returning to the present moment with as little judgment as possible, with as much friendliness as possible, allows us to see these states of mind these hindrances, these physical, psychological, emotional experiences. To receive them and to know that they're impermanent, passing. But perhaps the most difficult, and the Buddha characterized, the most difficult hindrance, experience for the meditator, is this experience of doubt. I was asked about this morning. This experience of, and it can be twofold, self-doubt, the identification with, this mind and body and saying, I can't do it. I don't have the capacity, the ability, the willingness. Or the flip side of that kind of doubt, which is this feeling that it just doesn't work. If it was possible, I could do it, but I've been trying for three days. <laughs> and this meditation stuff just doesn't work. My mind's not stopping. That's what's supposed to happen, right? And that often confused idea that meditation is good when the mind stops. Doubt is painful. And the Buddha seemed to say that it's dangerous and then the most difficult and debilitating visitor on the spiritual path and in meditation because it's the one hindrance that has the power to stop our practice. It's the one that if you really get identified with the doubt, really believe it, that you won't do the work. You'll stop paying attention. You'll stop training your heart and mind to return if you really believe that doubt. 
Now, it's an interesting place in Buddhism, right? Because the Buddha also asks us to question everything, to investigate it, to not just believe any of it, to find out for yourself if it's true or not. So here we are investigating. Sort of on some level, you could even say we're being asked to doubt. We're being asked to be a little bit skeptical of spiritual teachings. Don't believe it just because it was written down. Don't believe it because the Buddha said it, because it's been a tradition, because of a charismatic presentation. You know, really, don't just believe it. There's one teaching, and the next teaching is, but be careful of the doubt. Be careful of believing the doubt. And I think that this is the the ground, right? If we're questioning everything, the teachings, the practices, the instinctual drives, and the doubts, questioning them, investigating them. What's fueling this thought? What's underneath it? The self-doubt. Sometimes in my practice when a lot of self-doubt is arising, and I really just sit with it and pay attention to it, I feel very young. And if I listen really carefully, sometimes that you can't do it message isn't even in my own voice. I hear an older sibling taunting me. I hear a school teacher. I hear an external message that I have internalized and believed my whole life. You can't do it. The only thing that I have found that works is defiance. Is proving the mind wrong over and over and over. Somebody came into an interview today I was talking about walking slowly. And he said, the slower I walk, the angrier my mind gets. It tells me to hurry up. And I defy it. I walk even slower. I'll show that mind. And there's so much freedom in that. Breaking that 
servant-like quality to the mind, to the thoughts, to this dictator that's pushing us around. This defiance. The Buddha spoke about the path as a path of defiance, as a path of destroying the confusion, the identification. And that it gets subtler and subtler. Of course, there's the gross manifestations of greed, of hatred, and the manifold delusions and confusions in this world. And as we turn inward and see the roots, the seeds of greed and that just instinctual leaning towards and clinging to pleasure. We see it in our minds as we sit here trying to just be present, letting the thoughts come and go, but getting seduced over and over by the contents of our thoughts, by our fantasies, our plans. or the pleasant recollections of the past. How much we get identified with pleasure. How much we want it. And how deep the delusion that is held that we think pleasure equals happiness. And that if we are get more pleasure, we'll be happier. This seed of this root of greed, if I get more pleasure, pleasant things, attention, status, success, I'll be happier. Perhaps the greatest human delusion of them all Pleasure never equals happiness in the long term. It is fleeting. It is transient. It's just pleasure. The flip side of that is this long-held delusion. If I can escape from pain, also greed for pleasure. If I can escape from pain, 
I will be happy. Yet it's impossible. Completely and totally delusional to think that we can live without experiencing pain. It's a given. We're born into this pain body, in this realm. The happiness of freedom is perhaps better uh, described as contentment as ease, as well-being. The goal of this training is not constant bliss. The goal of this training is cooling the fires that burn us, that cause us to suffer. Pain does not cause suffering. You're seeing that, I believe, in your meditation. You can be in the unpleasant sensation. It's not a problem. It's our relationship to the pain that is the problem. It's the taking it personal, identification, self, this is me, mine, I. And it's the reactive aversion that creates the suffering. Just as pleasure does not equal happiness, pain does not have to equal suffering. This is the Buddha's teaching. This is our practice. This is why it's such a defiance of the status quo, of the norm, of what we're biologically prone to and certainly conditioned to believe. And I hope and I know, those of you who I've spoken with, are seeing this directly through investigating your own mind, body, heart, allowing pain to be present when it's present and meeting it with as much compassion as possible, not creating any suffering around it in those moments. Maybe they're rare right now. Allowing pleasure to come, enjoying it, letting it pass. Making room for the grief, the everyday, ordinary grief of existence in this impermanent realm.
I feel that the more we pay attention, the more naturally compassion arises, is uncovered. Wisdom and compassion are not something that we are developing, even though we will use those terms. It's not something that we're cultivating, although sometimes we say that. It seems much closer to the truth to say that what we are doing is excavating, uncovering, recovering or discovering. We're not bringing some foreign wisdom in. We're not getting some compassion from over there and bringing it in. It's all right here. It just was hidden. It just was buried. It just wasn't very accessible because we weren't paying attention closely enough before because we didn't know how. This practice simply teaches us how to pay attention. And each moment of wise attention, of friendly kind, investigative awareness is another scoop. There's another melting away, another dissolving of that which is blocking. The truth. I would go as far as to say our true nature, although the Buddha never says that. It's not a very Buddhist concept. But because I don't have better words for it, and because in my direct experience of of practice, it feels like that. In this retreat, we have offered uh, the vipassana instructions of present-time awareness. We've also done some forgiveness and compassion, loving-kindness practices. These are all useful tools to direct us to discovering the truth within our own present mind-body process. But what it feels like is that each moment of this wise, caring response is melting away, is clearing away the attachment, the aversion, the identification, and uncovering this heart, this enlightened potential that was always here, bringing us closer to awareness 
of what has always been here yet hidden. The doubt covers it, obscures it. The fear distracts us from it. But the more we pay attention, and I hope you're seeing this, and I guarantee that you will if you keep paying attention. That there is a natural caring for yourself, no matter how judgmental your mind is. No matter how critical, unforgiving, how much self-hatred is manifesting in the mind, underneath, in here, there is a quality of compassion, of love, kindness. That can be accessed. And when I first heard that, I said, bullshit. Maybe in you, but not in me. Because I was so identified with my thoughts, with my mind, with my emotions. I just didn't think it was true. I said, this mindfulness stuff, it's good. It relaxes me. Compassion? Mm Mm-mm. Don't feel it. But I kept practicing, and I kept practicing, and I began to see that it was here all along. And it slowly, slowly was uncovered. And that it feels like uh, true nature, what the Tibetans like to call Buddha nature, that the practice uncovers it, excavates it brings it into awareness, to a place that we can live from. The Buddha talks about the Brahma-viharas, the experience of being kind and loving, the experience of being compassionate, the experience of coming from a place of uh, appreciation and goodwill and equanimity, this balanced wisdom understanding. And that these are the natural, yet hidden, enlightened potentials within each one of us. Underneath the greed, the hatred, the delusion, underneath our habitual creation of suffering, confusion. Is the Buddha, is awake and filled with kindness.
It's an arduous path. If it's not difficult, you're not doing it right. It's a little bit of a judgmental statement. <laughs> this awakening seems to take place very um, slowly in most of us, gradually. Very few have the spontaneous. I'm there, experience. Most of us just trot along, practicing, paying attention, and suffer less and less, and become more generous, kinder. Over the years, I often quote the Dalai Lama as saying, only check in on your progress every decade. You know, on this spiritual path. This isn't something like, okay, I did a five-day retreat. Am I done? <laughs> or I've been doing it for six months or six years. But like every decade, kind of take inventory. Am I suffering less now? Am I able to come from a place of more compassion, more understanding? Or did I let doubt push me off the path? Did I believe it and give up, throw in the towel and plug back into the matrix and say, perhaps ignorance and suffering is bliss. I'll float downstream with the masses. It's really rare to start and continue this path. A very small percentage of people that take on Spiritual awakening. Continue. If that's why you're here. That's an assumption. Very few. Remember the hippies? (laughs) (laughs) Thousands and thousands, a whole generation subculture of a generation saying like we're going to wake up spiritual practice be here now man (laughs) you know they built this place about two percent of them stuck around kept practicing really were willing to go 
for the life's path of spiritual practice and not the fad. And the Buddha prophesied this. He said, a few in each generation will be willing to defy their own minds, this world, a few in each generation will awaken. Now, he also said, everyone could, everyone can. You know, this potential is in all beings. It's just such hard work. And we're so lazy, <laughs> complacent. that very few of us will really say, look, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to do it. I'm in in it for the long haul. No matter how difficult it gets or how pleasurable it becomes, I will continue towards freedom, whatever that means. And this process, this practice, this work you're doing, this training, not only good for the individual, in such simple ways, so good for your family. If you're wiser and more compassionate, so good for your fellow employees. For our culture. For our society. The streets are safer because Vinny meditates. <laughs> The outcome of insight is almost always service, is almost always engagement with the world, with the suffering. After the Buddha's enlightenment, he did not retire to a cave to enjoy his freedom from suffering. 
he spent the rest of his life teaching others, in some ways dismantling the oppressive system of his culture, the sexist and racist religious oppression of his culture. And so that is our work also. To wake up. To help others wake up. And to do all we can to create some positive change in this world. It's the work you're doing here on the cushion. This is just a reminder for all of those moments when your mind says, what the fuck am I doing? And sit for a moment. And if you care to, as you're sitting here, there may be the willingness, the inspiration to Make a little intention or vow. Maybe there in your own heart and mind, something like, for the benefit of all beings everywhere, I vow to do what needs to be done to uncover this wisdom and compassion here and now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.